0: an orderly account of the person and life of Jesus and also this early church movement that had started. This was what, what Luke was commissioned to do. And so the results are two books, originally one work, the Gospel of Luke and the Book of Acts. Now, of course, we've divided those two up. They have two different themes and purposes. But Luke wrote both of those for theophilus now this guy theophilus we don't know a ton about but this is what our guess is our guess is that theophilus was a um a roman officer or a dignitary you'll see in a moment he's referred to as most excellent which gives us some some clues that that might be who he was a man of standing and probably influence and power and it appears that he wanted to know if christianity was true there's like this hunger with him to know what is this all about, and if that's the case, and here's your first fill in the blank. I think this is an important part of understanding Acts. Is that Acts is written for skeptical people? It's written for people who have questions. It's written for people who want to know what does all this mean for for Luke and for Acts, or for Theophilus? Excuse me. At this time he was living and seeing these events going on and he wants to know more. He wants the questions that he has to be answered. And so this means that Acts is a historical account, but it has an apologetic nature to it. I want us to see, don't turn there, but just look behind me. Luke chapter one, verses three and four. This is how the gospel of Luke is started out that gives us these clues. Luke says this, therefore, since I myself, referring to himself Luke, that is, have carefully investigated everything. Again, he did interviews, he did research. From the beginning, it seemed good also to me to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus. Why? What's the purpose of this? So that you may know, you may know with the certainty of the things you have been taught. This is the purpose of Acts. This is the purpose of the gospel in Luke. Again, Theophilus and obviously many others, they're, they're seeing these events go on. They're hearing about this Jesus and, and maybe Theophilus got eyes on him too, I don't know. And then they are seeing this new church movement starting up and he wants to know what in the world is going on here. I have questions about this and maybe you do too this morning because it's the same today. I'm convinced of this. When people see the real deal, when people see the church, and by that it's people, people who love Jesus, and when they see the church in action, they wanna know what it means. They wanna know what is going on here with this. They wanna know what is different about you. And this is all such a good reminder for us that the church, us, Big C Church Global doesn't just exist to serve ourselves. It's far bigger than that. Part of why the church exists is for people who aren't here yet. Part of why the church exists is to be a witness, to be a testimony, to be a light to people who, who maybe have never read the Bible before. Maybe have questions about who God is maybe don't really understand what it all means, who have never stepped foot into a church. The church exists for those people too, to glorify God by being a witness to them. And I think that's an exciting part of the mission of the church. Again, this is why we articulate our mission here at New Hope. We exist to help people find and follow Jesus. That's what we're passionate about. So with that introduction, Acts chapter 1, verse 1, our whole summer begins as we jump into these verses. Let's start here at the very beginning and see how Luke unpacks the story of the early church. Acts 1, verse 1, he writes this, in my former book, former meaning first, that's the gospel of Luke, what he's referring to, Theophilus I wrote about all, all that Jesus began to do and to teach. I want you to notice something real quick here. Notice that he highlights what Jesus began to do and to teach. This is a good reminder for us. What Jesus did, how he lived, and what he said matched. This is a good challenge for us. That sometimes our actions don't match what we say we believe. Sometimes those two don't line up, but we see with Christ here that it did. It lined up there in terms of what he said and what he did. It continues on, All that Jesus began to do and to teach until the day he was taken up to heaven, after giving instructions or commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles he had chosen. Now, Luke tells us his first book, the Gospel of Luke, focused on what Jesus began to do and to teach. Now, if you have your Bibles there in this verse, I want you, where I put in yellow, I want you to put that or underline that or note something because Luke is very careful to highlight of the, the, um, the Gospel of Luke and what we're gonna see here in just a moment. These are things that Jesus began to do. This is such a different than every other religious leader who's ever done any work in this area. For example, if you take somebody like Muhammad, Buddha, Charles Russell, Joseph Smith, and the list goes on and on, those individuals have done everything they're ever going to do for their religious movement because they're dead. They're buried, and time has moved on without them. But notice that with, with Jesus, it's different. Luke says this whole gospel account of his birth, his ministry, his crucifixion, his resurrection, Luke says that's actually what he began to do. Jesus is still alive. Jesus is still moving. Jesus is still on his throne. His kingdom is still forcefully advancing. The gospel's accounts of his life, his death, and his resurrection, you don't put a period after that and then Jesus is done. Not at all. It is just beginning. It's an account of what he began to do. He is still working. He is still moving. It was only the beginning of his work. Let's continue on in verse 3. He says this, that after his suffering, referring to Jesus' death on the cross, he showed himself to these men, and he gave many convincing proofs or evidence that he was alive. And he, speaking of Jesus, appeared to them, uh, over a period of 40 days and spoke about the kingdom of God. I'm gonna pause here. In this verse, we have Luke referring to this historical uh, account where after his resurrection, Jesus a- appeared. He appeared alive and in his resurrected body. And he, over the period of 40 days, in these different intervals, Jesus would just show up. And He interacted with people. He talked to people and people could touch him. He ate with people. And when he was doing that, he was, as we just read here, he was giving the evidence, if you will, that it was really him, that he was alive. Now, I think sometimes when we read this, we have the assumption that when he did this, everyone believed. Because after all, they lived during this time. And so, so they could have been like, um, yeah, you were dead. I was there. Like I saw it, I heard about it, and now you're not. Like that's pretty strong proof. There's something here. There's something going on. There's something different about this Jesus in terms of what he said, but that's actually not what happened. Yes, certainly many did believe, but as Jesus would show up in these moments and he would give, as Luke just said, these convincing proofs, it didn't always always work out that way. That even though it was literally Jesus resurrected, there was some who still didn't believe. Let me give you one example. You don't have to turn there, but in the Gospel of Matthew, it's the end of his ministry, and Jesus is is with his disciples, and and that's more than the 12. There's a crowd there, and he's he's teaching them. He's giving his last commands to them, and in Matthew 28, verse 17, it makes this interesting statement. It says that when they, um, the followers of Jesus, saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. I don't know if you find that interesting or even hard to believe, how is it possible that people doubted? I mean, in that moment that Jesus is literally there, and the reason, one of the primary reasons, is that at this time, nobody, and I mean nobody, not Jews, not Greeks, nobody believed that resurrection was possible. Nobody. And maybe you think to yourself, well, why not? I mean, Lazarus, he was raised and you had other examples in the Bible of people being raised, but that's different because every other account in history and every other account in the Bible where you see somebody who was dead and then they were brought back to life, that's not resurrection, that's resuscitation. Lazarus came back into his same body. It was still him, it was Lazarus. Jesus resurrected, totally different. Jesus is in a new body, a resurrected body. He's the forerunner. He's the first. He's the first to have this resurrected body. And so people, when they are here and they're hearing about it, and they're seeing this resurrection account of Jesus in a new body, this was such a worldview shift for people at this time. I would even argue it was harder for people at this time to, to buy into the resurrection than it even is for us today because it was so not plausible. It was something that was so foreign to them that could ever even happen. And yet people, of course, did. They were skeptical, but people did believe because here's the bottom line. They didn't believe in Jesus and the resurrection because they wanted to. They believed it because the evidence was so overwhelming, it became fact for them. In fact, here's your next fill in the blank on this point here. The first Christians believed because of the evidence. They believe because of the evidence. And this was important because for them, and maybe someday for us, to believe in a resurrected Jesus and all that that entailed, you know what that meant? It meant mockery, probably job loss, persecution, and potentially death. It was more than a feeling. It was fact because of the evidence. And for us, I just want to encourage us with this idea. Don't ever come to Christianity because you think it will fulfill you. It will. But that's not why you come. Come to Christianity because it's true. Because the evidence is so overwhelming in a resurrected Jesus and all that the Bible teaches. Let's continue on in verse four as we continue to unpack this passage here. Luke continues, he says, on one occasion while he, speaking of Jesus, was eating with them, with the disciples, he gave them this command. He said, do not leave Jerusalem, but wait for the gift my father promised. This gift is, is the Holy Spirit, which you have heard me speak about. For John baptized with water, but in a few days, you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. I want to just highlight something real quick here. When, when Jesus says these words, it's in the passive voice. What this means is that this is something's about to happen for you disciples. And you're not actually doing any of it. You're receiving it. It's in the passive voice. In other words, the Holy Spirit is coming to you. The Holy Spirit is going to be sent to you and going to come upon you. And we know this happened 10 days later. So he's telling them, he says, I want you to wait. Hang tight. The gift is coming. The Holy Spirit is coming. You will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Verse six, he says, so so when they met together, they asked him, Lord, are you at, at this time, when he's referring to the, when the Holy Spirit comes, are you at this time going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or dates the father set by his own authority. Now, sometimes the disciples get hammered for this question. They're asking a political question. If you remember in the ministry of Jesus, all along the disciples would be oftentimes asking, hey, is this the time when you're gonna like take the throne? Is this the time when you're going to get Caesar out of there? Is this the time like all the taxing that they do? Can you do some political reforming here and make our lives easier? Jesus, when are you gonna do this? And so they asked Jesus really the same question now. Jesus, when are you gonna set up your kingdom? And when are you going to get rid of Rome. What's interesting is what their question is indicating is they long for freedom, but they're much more interested in being set free from Caesar than from sin. And so they ask this question, and Jesus gives this interesting answer. He's going to say, as we'll read here in just a moment, I'm going to do something far bigger. The Holy Spirit's coming, and then I have a job for you to do. Let's close our last verse, that is, with verse eight. Here's our job. Jesus says, but you will receive power. That word power is the word that we use today for dynamite, dunamis. But you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. Now, what's the power for? It's not for us, not for us to be superheroes, not for us to any of that. Here's what it is. And Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. I want you to notice a few things here. As you see, your next fill in the blank. Jesus is giving in this verse a call to action for you and for me. It's a call to action in this case. To, to be a witness. It's the, it's the job of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's primary job is to point people to Jesus. And so when the Holy Spirit comes on us as his followers, comes in us and dwells with us, then our job is, is his job. The Holy Spirit is to then point people to Jesus and to do so as a witness. Now, the early churches, we're gonna read, they took this challenge on which is why God used them in such profound ways and they paid a price for it. In fact, what's interesting is that so many Christians took on the challenge to be a witness for Christ that the word for witness, martyres, eventually became the word that we use today for martyrs, martyr. Witness and martyr is the same word. It's what it costs them to take on this call to action that Jesus is commissioning them to. It's not only a call to action, but next we see in this verse, your next fill in the blank, Jesus gave a promise. And it's a promise that you can hang on to and never let go of. It's a promise that you and I need. And the promise that Jesus gave is that the Holy Spirit, which is gonna be sent, would provide all the enabling that they need, that we need to do the work that he's called us to do. It's the exact same today. You don't have to do this in your own strength. And frankly, you and I can't do this in our own strength. But the Holy Spirit gives us what we need. I just want us to take this in for a moment. The God of the universe picks you to be his witness to show and to tell about him. There's no plan B. And and if nothing else, this idea, that I hope you feel a little bit of weight with that, this idea that God chooses you and calls you, invites you, commissions you, us to be witnesses, this this idea um, that, that that is the case, what it does is it should communicate to you incredible value and purpose. You're not just here to take up space. You're not just here for no reason. You're not an accident. You're not just here to just bumble our way through lives, figure out what to do, and then someday we die. You have immense purpose. God has selected for you the exact place, time and history, Family, giftings, physical attributes, and more than that. He's selected all of that so that you and I can bring him glory and be a witness for him right where he's placed you. You have immense purpose. I want to close this morning with three challenges to this end. Three challenges. Three three ways that I think you and I just questions, things to think about and how to live this out in greater measure. Here's your first one and your next fill in the blank. And it's this idea. I am a witness for Jesus. I want you to take this in for a moment. Here's the truth. If you know, love and follow Jesus, you are a witness for Jesus. The question is not, am I? The question is, What kind of witness am I? Some of us listening this morning, and I don't know, but, but it is possible. Some of us are not very good witnesses. As in what people see when they look at our lives doesn't really match up to anything that's here or even what's on God's heart. And that can cause damage. Maybe you know or met somebody who they they don't want to consider that there is a God who loves them, a Jesus that died for them. And the reason they say that is because they point to an example of a person who maybe wasn't the best witness. Of course, the opposite is the case. You can be a good witness, an effective witness. And that's obviously what the challenge is. So I want to ask this evaluation question for each of us. What kind of witness are you for Jesus? Do some soul searching with that. And let me remind all of us that lifestyle trumps what you say you believe. And let me say it in another way. How you live is far more important in terms of being a witness than what you say. Remember Jesus, his words and his actions matched. But he's Jesus. But he's our example. That we should strive to do the same thing. It isn't just that, oh, I say I'm a Christian, but I don't really live any different. Or I'm going to tell people about what they should believe, but when they look at my life, I hope they don't, they see something very different. That will kill your witness. that will will make it um, even destructive. So number one, I am a witness. I wanna really challenge all of us. How are you doing in this area? What kind of a witness are you? Here's number two. Number two, we are witnesses for Jesus. And this is really important because the the Greek in verse 8, the way way, uh, Luke has written this here, the you there is plural. And so what it does, it gives the idea that we are to be witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth at the exact same time. One person can't do that. So the idea is that living out this calling to be a witness is a communal effort. It's all of us. It's all of us linked together. The places I go during the week and and my job and family and commitments are different than yours and you're interacting with different people. and, And so, and we had somebody here from overseas even sharing this morning. And so we all in these different roles in different callings and different giftings are simultaneously living out this witness endeavor to reach ultimately the nation's. The person across the street, the person across the town, the person across an ocean. But we do this together, which raises this evaluation question. This is then is for all of us. What kind of witness do you think New Hope Church is in our community? In Dallas County. If you were to do a man on the street video and just interview people, what do you know about New Hope Church? What do you think they would say? If New Hope Church closed its doors tomorrow, would anybody in Dallas County notice or care? I think these are important questions. We are to be witnesses together, praying for each other, encouraging each other in this communal effort. And then the last idea, the last fill in the blank this morning might be a little bit surprising, but it's this idea that it is a painful thing to lose your sense of purpose. To demonstrate this, in the Old Testament, there's a story in the book of Numbers. And this, this story is one where Moses is with Israel and they're out in the desert. They had just done the Exodus out of Egypt and they're there and. And it's time for them, God has faithfully led them to the edge of the promised land. It's time for them to cross over and to go and to occupy the land. And so Moses puts together a delegation of 12 men. And he sends them into the promised land to basically scout. Find out what's there. What what are we kind of walking into? And so these 12 men go and they come back. And two of them give a positive report. Their report essentially was... We can do this because God's called us to do this. Yeah, there's some challenges, and they're really tall over there. They're big people, but we can do this. Ten of them said, "No, no way." We did the math. Our army's too small. They're again, they're really big. They're tall. Um, Yeah, it's a nice land, good real estate, but there's no way. And this report from the ten completely took the air out of the, the nation. I mean, they were so discouraged. But more important than that, God was furious. This is a generation of people who saw saw in part the sea, the plagues, the Passover, the Shekinah glory cloud by day, the pillar of fire by night. I mean, all these things in, in, in this generation, they saw all of this and yet they doubt God. And they say, they said, there's no way. And so God issued judgment. He said, this generation will never go to the promised land. That was their purpose. That's what I had for them. But it was over. Essentially, that generation of people, what they were left with was to die. Because that generation needed to pass. So 40 years of just sitting in the desert, waiting for all these people to pass away, waiting for the next generation to come. When Moses shared with the nation of Israel that their purpose was over and that they would not be occupying the land, the nation, it just says in the text, in Numbers 14, they grieved bitterly. And here's the thing. When you lose your sense of purpose, what tends to happen is you tend to lose your good sense. Because here's what happened. In verse 40, it says this. Numbers 14, verse 40, it says, Early the next morning, they went up toward the hill country. That's the promised land. They said, We have sinned, but we will go up to the place the Lord promised. Again, this promised land place. What are they doing? God literally said, It's over. But see, you can't live without purpose. And so the next morning, they recklessly say, well, we're just gonna do it anyway. And they just charged over across the boundary line into the promised land and they were wiped out almost instantly. It's this tragic story here of what happens when you lose purpose. Because see, when you don't know why you're here, then you don't know what to do while you're here. And so what tends to happen is you make up a purpose. By the way, some of you, especially if you're a little older, remember the book, The Purpose-Driven Life, why that sell over 50 million copies in 137 languages? Because there's a universal longing inside of every person that longs to have a sense of purpose, that longs to have a sense of clarity about why I'm here and what I'm supposed to do while I'm here. But what happens far too often without that clarity, because you have to have a purpose, is that most people in most cultures, in most places, you make up a purpose. You got to figure something out. That's called existentialism. You you just fill in the gaps. And so it's, well, maybe it's my job. Maybe it's my money or my success or a relationship or a pursuit. You just got to find something. But what happens is it never fulfills. It never pays off. It comes to a moment for everybody with wherever it is you sort of look for outside of the Lord and what he has for you. You look for purpose. What happens in the end is it breaks your heart. So here's what I want to challenge you to do. I want you to take a moment today or this week, and I want you to take some time before the Lord with a pen and piece of paper, or I guess we don't use pens anymore, we type. However you want to do it. I want you to write out your purpose. Now that feels very broad, so where do we begin? Well, let me just give you the cliff notes of what the Bible says. Your purpose on the highest sort of level is to bring glory to God. What that means is honor, spotlight him. To bring glory to God and to be a witness. Again, here at New Hope, we call that helping people find and follow Jesus. But what does that mean for you? So here's what I ask you to do. With pen and paper, I want you to write down with my family, how will you glorify God and be a witness? In my work, whether it's occupation, work at home, whatever it is, how will I glorify God and be a witness? In my friendships, relationships, how will I glorify God? How will I be a witness? God, what do you want me to do? And if there's some other categories and areas, do those too. But really begin to think through in your words, how will I articulate what it means to live out his purpose for your life and mine? Because here's what I know about life, and you do too. It is easy to forget or to lose sight of our purpose. So many things come at us. So many things bombard us, distract us, pull our hearts, tug our minds. Before we know it, we don't realize why we're doing what we're doing. So what is it? What's your purpose? Articulate that as you get before God. Here's what's going to happen. The worship team can come up, if you would, please. As you do this, you will begin to experience greater clarity, And focus to what he's asking you to do, who he's asking you to be, which is going to help you to become a person of impact. Would you pray with me? Let's pray together, and uh, then we're going to respond in worship. Father, this morning we thank you for all those watching online and, and here on the campus. We thank you for how you're working and moving in our hearts and lives. And we thank you that you have endowed us with purpose, that we don't have to scramble and wonder why we're here and what you've called us to be about. And so I pray for each of us that you would help us to have clarity around our purpose in the different areas of our lives and then to live that out. Father, I thank you too that we don't do any of this on our own strength or smarts but rather we trust in and we rely in the gift that Jesus promised to those first Christians waiting in Jerusalem. It's the same Holy Spirit that is moving today, that is in people today, that is pointing people to Christ today. So Father, help us to be about your purpose and not our own, to be about your kingdom and not building our own. We pray this all.